we know we can learn a lot from our genetics, but genetics aren't everything. So can you talk a little bit about how our genetics interact with our lifestyle to impact our health? Sure. So I'll use a very uh, straightforward example that we can all understand and agree on. I think that the old debate of nature versus nurture, I think we realize is a ridiculous debate now. It's both. Uh, it's both all the time. So if the winner of the men's competition and women's had a child, uh, they're going to have some pretty good genetics, but they're not going to be a games competitor if they sit on the couch the entire time. They're going to be below average if they never do anything. So we know that we could be born with really good or bad genes, um, but we turn those on and off all the time. So we have control over those and they, they interact very frequently. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this week's episode, I'm sharing another panel I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health at this year's CrossFit Games. This panel was on the topic of precision medicine. I sat down with panelists Dr. Matt Dawson and Dr. Mike Mallon, who provided background on the science behind genomics and precision medicine, described how this cutting-edge approach can inform lifestyle choices, and explained why genomics is just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to optimizing health. This panel was originally published on CrossFit.com, but I'm excited to share it here with all of you. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get to the episode. This is our final CrossFit Health panel of the weekend, and I am very excited to be talking about an exciting topic of genomics. So first of all, who in the crowd knows what we mean when we say genomics? Couple hands, couple hands. All right, you guys are in the right spot. So I'm going to first introduce our guest today. First, I have Dr. Matt Dawson. He is, as Noah said, the CEO of Wild Health. Both of them, sorry, are emergency medicine physicians uh, and co-founded Wild Health, which is a precision medicine practice. And Matt is the CEO. He received his medical degree from the University of Kentucky and completed his residency and fellowship at the University of Utah. He's won numerous national awards for education, innovation, and leadership. He co-authored two textbooks, lectured in over 20 countries, and trained thousands of other physicians through online education. He considers himself obsessed with performance optimization and combines his training in genomics and functional medicine to give personalized, precise medical guidance. So that's Dr. Matt Dawson. Next. Yeah. <laughs> then we have Dr. Mike Mallon, who is the chief medical officer at Wild Health. He attended the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, also completed his residency at the University of Utah, and now practices in Bend, Oregon. Dr. Mallon completed his fellowship in point-of-care ultrasound. He's the co-author of two textbooks and taught thousands of other physicians through online education. And his current obsession is the science of longevity, helping people live as long as they can with the highest quality of life obtainable. So thank you, Mike. All right, so let's get started. First, I would just love to hear how the two of you got into CrossFit. Yeah, um, so circa 2008, I believe, uh, I was in residency in Salt Lake City, and um, a friend of mine was going to Salt Lake City CrossFit at the time and encouraged me to come, so I came for like a free Saturday workout, which is what they did at the time, and 
basically transitioned from going to you know 24 hour fitness where I work out by myself with my headphones on, kind of bored out of my mind the entire time, to just being surrounded by all these energetic, awesome people. Uh, it was a little crazy. It was a little intense. It reminded me a lot of work, um, which was good, and um, and I got totally addicted immediately, and that's how it started. And I basically followed Mike. Uh, that's it. So when when I went into my first box, uh, I. I'd played a couple sports in college, so I thought I knew what pain and work was, and I realized I didn't. Like, it was just so painful that I immediately was obsessed with it. Um, as a confession, at the time, we were too, for, too poor to really afford it, so we got, uh, I think, probably a couple Groupons, went to a few classes, and then we got kicked out of a lot of 24-hour fitnesses after that, where we would drop weights and try to do the workouts in areas where no one appreciated it. Some familiar stories there. So... Uh, so the two of you are both practicing emergency medicine in academic centers, and then you really started to develop this interest in genomics and took that into your career and your current practice at Wild Health. So what, what got you into genomics? Yeah, so um, that's where we were in emergency medicine. We're, we no longer practice emergency medicine now, but at the time, while that was our medical practice, our real obsession was with performance optimization, like a lot of you all. Um, and not just athletic, but how do we optimize our brains? How do we optimize our longevity? That's what we were really interested in. And several years ago, probably four or five years ago, we started seeing all this literature come out about genomics and precision medicine. And for the last 10 years before that, there had been a lot of like buzz around personalized medicine, but no one was doing it. And we started seeing this science that maybe now is the time that we can do this. And as we're looking at that, uh, Mike actually had a, a difficult kind of medical issue come up. He found out that even though we were doing CrossFit, doing all these things right, his lipids, his cholesterol was through the roof. And not like a little bit like doctors overreact to, but really dangerous levels. And so as we're looking at this genomic stuff, he goes to see his physician. Um, they start him on a diet that he gets worse on. And that's how medicine kind of works. Like we, we say this works when we see a study, but what we're really saying is this works for 60% of people or 80%, but not everyone. So the diet that worked for most people made Mike worse. Um, his physician also wanted to start him on a statin then because his numbers were so high. Uh, we were worried about that because there's risk of myopathy and muscle breakdown. And sure enough, he had those, didn't tolerate it at all. And as he's going through this, we both sequenced our DNA and just started really digging in and looking at it. And pretty quickly, we saw that Looking at his DNA, he needed almost the exact opposite diet of what he had started on. And he had a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism, that made him almost guaranteed to get that muscle breakdown of myopathy. And we were kind of annoyed at first, like why did his doctor not know this, like instead of putting him through the suffering? And we realized that no one was doing this. Like it's all there, all the science was there and no one was doing it. And that sent us kind of down this rabbit hole and obsession of reading everything we could find out about it. Eventually, practicing on ourselves, our friends, our family, other physicians who we were teaching at the time. Um, and the results were amazing. And then we said, we're going all in. Like, this is how medicine should be practiced. And we left our university jobs and started Wild Health. And then around the same time, just to add to that, um, we were also, I think, a little frustrated with the standard medical system. I mean, working in the emergency department, you see the, the people that don't take care of themselves that get put on tons of medications rather than get talked to about lifestyle by their physicians. So I was personally, and I think Matt was as well, just 
a little disenfranchised by the entire situation and sort of sick of seeing that and wanting to enact some degree of change and bring lifestyle changes to patients as opposed to medications and prescriptions. And the two things just happen at the same time kind of perfectly. That's a great lead into my next question. So we know we can learn a lot from our genetics, but genetics aren't everything. So can you talk a little bit about how our genetics interact with our lifestyle to impact our health? Sure. So, um, I'll use a very uh, straightforward example that we can all understand and agree on. I think that the old debate of nature versus nurture, I think we realize is a ridiculous debate now. It's both. Uh, it's both all the time. So if you, if uh, the winner of the men's competition and women's had a child, uh, they're going to have some pretty good genetics, but they're not going to be a games competitor if they sit on the couch the entire time. They're going to be below average if they never do anything. So we know that we could be born with really good or bad genes. Um, but we turn those on and off all the time. So we have control over those and they, they interact very frequently. So um, what we do is we sequence people's DNA, but then we also look at their blood work, uh, where they are now. That's the DNA is kind of the operating system. And then the blood work tells us where we are and how we got there is how all the actions that we've taken, turning those genes on and off. Um, as an example, a lot of the things that we do that we know are good for us, they're good for us because they upregulate these good genes. Um, an example of that is a gene called PGC1-alpha. So it upregulates mitochondrial density, which is a good thing. Mitochondria are the powerhouse of your cells. And you upregulate that by exercise, fasting, cold exposure. So we can look at someone's genes and look at the ones where they have maybe some disadvantages and then give them actions to do to upregulate those genetics. And there are also genes that... Um, certain environmental cues turn on and we don't ever want on. For example, some people have a gene that makes vitamin E be inflammatory to them. So if we see they have that gene, then that person needs to avoid vitamin A. So it tells us both what we need to do and not do once we look at all these genes and look at the advantages and disadvantages that you have. So I think you've mentioned a couple times this term SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism. Can you explain what that means for our audience? Yeah, so um, DNA is basically a long strand of proteins, um, G's and C's, A's and T's, right? And what your nucleus of your cell does is it unravels that DNA and it makes proteins, right? So it makes, uh, it makes long um, uh, structures that sort of fold up together and then do things inside the cell. So protein's not just your muscles, right? It's also enzymes. It's the chemicals inside your cell that actually function to do things, right? And what happens is we're all different because of variants in those chemicals, the G's, the A's, the C's, and the T's within our DNA, right? And sometimes a lot of those little changes where, you know, a G is in place of a T, uh, that can happen and just change the color of your hair or the color of your eyes. And usually it takes more than one of those changes. But sometimes if you get a specific one of those changed, that's actually going to affect the way that protein folds in and the way it functions. That's going to increase or decrease the function of those enzymes within your cells. So a few of these changes can have massive effects. And a lot of those changes together, even if they have small effects, can also have a greater effect. So what happens is you have these some diseases where a single polymorphism or a SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism, can actually cause a disease. There's other cases where you can have a hundred of the, those different SNPs that over the course of time can help you develop disease because of their overall effects together. Everyone get that? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. 
Well, Matt alluded to a little bit earlier how we can use this information to impact our health. So we all know exercise is good for us. Getting enough sleep is good for us. Eating real food is good for us. Um, being around other people and having social interaction is great for us. But how can we use the information that we obtain from sequencing our genome to be more precise about those lifestyle recommendations? I think the best place to start is with a couple examples. Is that all right? Um, so I'll bring up one that just always comes to mind, um, especially in the CrossFit community, and that's uh, a gene called CYP1A2. And this is a gene that affects caffeine metabolism. And the reason this one is interesting is because there's a lot of variance in the population on how active that enzyme is based on that one single nucleotide polymorphism. In fact, if you've got the fastest version of caffeine metabolism, then if you drink three cups of coffee before you work out, you're going to have a 7% improvement in your performance during that workout. Whereas if you've got the lowest function of that enzyme and you drink three or four cups of coffee before you work out, you're going to have a 13% decrease in performance from that workout. Also, those people with the slower enzyme have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and hypertension associated with drinking coffee on a regular basis. So these studies that say coffee is good for heart health, kind of if you're that person who has the right genetics. So really you need, what we need to do is pull away from this population-based medicine approach and start looking at the specifics to realize how you're different than the person sitting right next to you in terms of what you put in your body. So it sort of explains when you hear a study every other week conflicting itself, right? Like coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you. Well, maybe it's good for some people, bad for some people, but you don't know unless you know what your genes say. Exactly. And so to give a couple more examples of that, um, a really obvious one is uh, when it comes to pharmacogenomics, so Plavix. Plavix is a medication that it's billions of dollars a year, millions of people are on it, and about 30% of people have a specific SNP that makes it not only not helpful, but potentially harmful. And it's maddening that no one knows this and no one is testing for it. It's 30% of people. It, it's really incredible. And I think um, there's an important word in your question, too. You said, how do we use genomics to be more precise? So that's important because um, we're not using genomics to be perfect. Uh, it's just more precise. And, and what I mean by that is earlier I mentioned that normally in medicine what we do now is you come to a physician, they say, this is probably going to work. They're basically making their best guess based on your history, physical, and all your other information. This is just more information to help them speed up that process and iteration. Like if Mike's physician, if he had came to him and he had his genes, he would not have put him on that diet. He put on a different one so he wouldn't have suffered. He would have got there quicker. And the same thing with the statin. He wouldn't have put him on a statin. He would have put him on a different medication. So this makes us more precise and just speeds up that loop that we use in, medic in, in medicine. I love it. So we're always talking about in CrossFit doing these end of one experiments on ourselves, right? Trying something new, seeing how it affects your performance and deciding if it's something you want to incorporate long term. And having the genetics gives you that, uh, that more precise starting place for those experiments. And Julie, you mentioned a great uh, thing earlier about uh, coffee may be good for you, may be bad for you, all these things, and, and talking about genetics. A really great example that just came out of that is concerning omega-3. So how many of you take an omega-3 supplement by chance? It's, it's a lot of people usually. And in general, if you read the literature and the lay press, everyone should be on omega-3s. It's really great. But a study just came out that there's a small percentage of the population that has a specific SNP that makes cardiovascular, makes omega-3 not cardiovascular protective, but actually potentially harmful. And we're finding that more and more. There's just so much bio-individuality that we're discovering. And the more we know about that, the more precise we can be. 
medicine's been really obsessed with doing these giant studies. And I'm sure you see, those are the ones that get the press, right? On CNN, you know, 10,000 patients, 20,000 patients. That's great when you're looking at population-based care and you say, what's the most likely thing to work for the person in front of me? Well, the most likely thing is caffeine's probably gonna be good for you, but that doesn't necessarily work when you're looking at the individual person. And we're starting to see that with genomics. It's taken a long time. We didn't really finish even, you know, figuring out the human genome until 2003. But that's just knowing what the actual base pairs are. Now we've got to take all that data, figure out what these genes even do, and then figure out how we're all different and how they all affect our lives. Another area that has a lot of variation and we've probably all experimented with is different diets and specifically different macronutrients. So I'm sure people here have tried low-carb diets, keto diets, paleo diets, um, fasting. There's a lot of variation, but how can we use our genome to help inform our macronutrient intake? There's some decent polygenic studies that have come out. And when I say polygenic, I mean, I mean that they're looking at multiple genes. So there's not one gene you can look at that says keto is good for you or one gene that says the Mediterranean diet is good for you. You have to look at multiple ones because there's so many different effects inside the cell. But studies are coming out now showing that if we look at specific genes, in some cases it's 10, 15, sometimes 100, we can get a sense for who's going to fit better in those different macronutrient profiles. Some of those genes that pop out are things like PPAR-alpha and PPAR-gamma, which control how you use fat within your cell. And what we see is that once we pull enough of this data in and we look at a large enough population, we can start to get a sense for who's going to do better with a carbohydrate heavy diet or who's going to do better with a fat heavy diet and who's going to have negative side effects from the alternate diet. Yeah, I, as you were asking the question, I was laughing a little bit because I used to have a rule that I never would talk about uh, uh, um, uh, it's a religion. Yeah, it's, it's a religion. I'm I would never talk about nutrition because it's religion. In fact, I was more comfortable talking politics and religion than actually nutrition. Um, because, it, and I think the reason why it's so like a, a religious thing is because people do find a specific diet that works really well from them, so they assume it works for everyone else. And so you can never really convince people that their diet is the one. But that's actually what got Mike and us, Mike and I, into this. Um, we found that. I do really well on a very animal-heavy, ketogenic-style diet, and Mike does really well on a more plant-based, almost vegan diet. And we've, we've learned that first with our genetics, we saw this hint of that, and then actually experimenting, it was a profound difference in both how we feel, perform, and our labs and biomarkers as well. So that first story that Matt was telling, where basically I went to my doctor and got put on a diet and it didn't go well, like we were basically almost the exact same person. Like people would like, they would confuse us in residency. They'd call me Matt and they'd call him Mike. And it was just hilarious to us that our genetics couldn't be any different. Like once we did run our genome, we realized that they were totally different. And that's why when I was eating a ketogenic diet, my CRP went to three and my, my cholesterol went to like 400 and my LDL cholesterol was 300. I mean, it was just insane. The changes that I saw, particularly in my diet, he's eating the same thing and his numbers are like perfect. And so that's, that was the aha moment. How about when it comes to mental health? What can our genome tell us about mental health, mood, things like anxiety or depression? There's, there's a couple here. Um, the, the first one is a, a SNP called COMT, and that controls how you degrade dopamine. You'll notice a lot of these genes that we talk about affect like how your cells function, right? So this one has to do with how you degrade dopamine, which is a, you know, a, basically a neurotransmitter in your brain. And some people are faster or slower degraders of dopamine. And 
having dopamine in your brain for longer periods of time can lead to things like anxiety and worry. Well, we can't really change your genes, right? But I can actually improve the function of that enzyme by improving another process called methylation, which I'm not gonna go into. But like optimizing your B vitamins, optimizing the amount of choline in your diet can improve your ability to manage those dopamine levels and actually help decrease your anxiety and your depression. And there's a couple other interesting SNPs. That's the most popular one we talk, we think about. But uh, for example, the OXTR SNP, when we see that specific SNP, that tells us that that individual would probably do better with a loving kindness meditation. So if it's someone who's had trouble meditating before or tried different forms, they may benefit from that specific, specific meditation technique. So some interesting things like that. Another one you mentioned anxiety is uh, FAAH or fatty acid amidhydrolase. So this is something that breaks down a chemical called anandamide, which is called the bliss, bliss compound. So if someone has very low levels of FAAH, they have very high levels of anandamide, and it's very difficult or less likely for them to feel anxiety or pain, uh, which is a really interesting finding. Um, you could kind of go down a rabbit hole on that about thinking about measuring that and talking about kind of sports positions where you would put someone. Um, I, in high school, I played a lot of different sports, but the one thing that was by far my favorite thing in the world, it still is, was a penalty kick shootout. I was a goalkeeper and I just loved that more than anything in the world. And then later when I looked at my genetics, I had a super rare mutation in this, in the, not a mutation, a SNP, this FAAH, like a one in 144 chance that made me almost impossible to feel anxiety. And like I enjoyed that. And my wife is a psychiatrist and for years I had told her, I don't think I understand the concept of anxiety. And then when I saw that in my genes, it's like, that's why I'm not feeling that like other people. So you could imagine a sports team, this is kind of that far in the future, doing these analyses and kind of picking the positions of where you're going to put someone based on the psychology of that. It's like the new money ball. <laughs> Always very interesting, I think, when you can learn something about your genome that explains something you experience in your life. What about when it comes to recovery? So that's something I think we all struggle with and we all try to assess subjectively and maybe objectively, but how much recovery we need in between our workouts. Can we learn anything from our genes about recovery? So I, I told kind of Mike's first story, um, my aha moment came with when it comes to recovery. So when, when I looked at my genetics at first, I was at the time doing um, some Ironman races and ultra, ultra distance things. And because I did come from a sports background and, and where like uh, no pain, no gain, um, I was always really sore, I was always beat up, and I just thought that's how it was. When I looked at my genetics, I saw that I actually needed quite a bit more recovery than most people. So when I saw that, I started doing other activities, maybe more skill-based training, just less volume in general, and it made a profound difference. Like, I, I remember waking up thinking, oh, like, I shouldn't, I guess I shouldn't, at, at, in my 30s, have to, like, sit down to put socks on, but I, I couldn't put my socks on before I found this out because I was so inflamed all the time and so sore. So seeing that and then building, changing the volume that I did, changing my recovery methods, just made a big difference in my performance and how I felt every day. Wonderful. Can you, and then I, I would love to touch on sleep as well. So obviously sleep is extremely important for recovery and has a lot of health benefits, but are there any specific genes that can inform sleep patterns? Yeah, there's a few. There's been some uh, decent research on um, time to go to bed and time to wake up. So your circadian rhythm and figuring out what time you should be going to bed. So we can put people into groups of either early risers or night owls. 
and actually make a recommendation of you're probably somebody who needs to be going to bed between like 8.30 and 9 o'clock as opposed to somebody who needs to sleep in until 8 or 8.30 in the morning. Um, whether you can actually do that in your actual lifestyle is, up, is to, be, to be determined, but there are the genes out there that we can take a look at that and try, start to figure out. I think sleep is a perfect example of how we use genetics to be a little more precise but still do the end of one experiments. So what I mean by that is like you can look at the chronotype data uh, but then you want to do the experiment. So it will give you an idea whether to tell someone maybe go to bed a little earlier or maybe later based on this chronotype, but then you measure it. So uh, all of our patients, for example, we normally ask them to get an aura ring so we can measure their sleep. So we can measure the effect of that. Also, if they're not sleeping well, there's a hundred things you could recommend to them. So if you've got a way to start with what's most likely going to work, that's going to be great and shortcut the process. So if they have a TRP polymorphism, magnesium would probably be initially a good thing. If they have certain MTNR1B and A polymorphisms, maybe melatonin. Um, the FAAH I mentioned earlier, if you have a specific version of that, then CBD may be helpful for sleep as well. So it's still gonna be about the end of one experiments, but we could be more precise and we can get there more quickly if we have this data on someone's genetics. Can you give any examples of patients you've worked with that experienced a measurable difference in their health or their longevity by using information about their genome that they probably wouldn't have experienced otherwise if you didn't have that information? Uh, for sure. I could probably give you five examples from every patient that we worked with. It, it's just really fun to do this. It, it really is. Um, and just to preface this by saying um, data is much more important than stories. Uh, and, and we've gotten really great, interesting data with our patients of decreasing LP little A, increasing HRV and these things but the stories are memorable. So um, I guess the story that stands out most in my mind is my own mother. So my grandmother recently passed away from Alzheimer's disease. She had dementia, which is a horrible disease if you've ever had anyone in your family that had that. So very early on when we started, one of our first patients was my, my mother. I wanted to look at her DNA. Specifically, I was thinking about a gene called APOE4, which really increases your risk of dementia. And she did have that. She had gotten it from her mother and she also was really sick, like she had bad insulin resistance, uh, she was um, overweight quite a bit, all of her other markers were a mess. So we went down the list with her diet, we looked at, we were able to optimize her diet based on her genetics, her blood work, all that, um, her exercise, um, uh, everything about what we do, the mindfulness part, uh, and we got her on the program and within three months she had lost 40 pounds, reversed her insulin resistance, and she said, I feel 20 years younger. And when she said that, I thought, no, mom, you, you, you probably are 20 years younger. Chronologically, you're three months older, but you're probably 20 years younger when it comes to your lifespan and health span. And there are a lot of specific examples in her case. Um, for example, her vitamin D level. She had a VDR SNP that mean, made her probably need more vitamin D to get to a good level. But I looked at her blood work and she was on the border a lot. She was almost there. And then I also knew she's in Kentucky going into the winter. So if she'd been in Florida, I would have just had her get more sun, but in Kentucky, we actually gave her a vitamin D supplement. Um, when it comes to omega-3, which we mentioned earlier, she had a FADS2 polymorphism, meaning she probably needed more omega-3. Um, she also was a little low in her omega-3, and because she had APOE4, if she didn't have the APOE4, with her, I probably would have just had her eat more fish and see if we get her level up. Because of the APOE4, it was so important we actually started on a supplement. And that's an example of how we look at multiple genes and the labs and the lifestyle and make a recommendation. Um, I'll give one other with her. There's probably a, a 10 just from her. Uh, she had um, 
elevated liver enzymes. So it's looked like fatty liver, which normally the first thing you think about is, okay, let's reduce sugar or alcohol. So she didn't, doesn't drink anyway, so the sugar. But then in her genetics, she had a SNP that made her, it looks like she needed more choline, which is important for the liver. And when I looked at a blood marker that measures effects of choline, it was high, which is not good. So we started on choline and her liver function, uh, liver tests resolved. So it's, it's every patient, we could give multiple stories like that. But I think an important point I, I wanted to make with those examples is it's never just about genetics though. You see how the lifestyle part and the blood work played a big part in the decision-making too. And genetics was an important piece of the puzzle. It wasn't the whole thing, it was just an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I was about to just get a little negative on you there for a second. We're not always right. So the, I think it's important to remember that um, we don't know everything about genetics or genomics. Uh, there's quite a bit of genes that we don't even really understand. We don't really understand 100% how the body works, right? This is just a starting point. It's like, it's like cheating a little bit to kind of get you past that first, like, you know, 60% or so to know where to start with somebody. And then you're still practicing medicine. You can't just get this data and then assume that this is the way I need to live my life because you've already lived your life forever how many years before you've actually collected this data, right? So you don't know how you've upregulated or downregulated genes because of how you've ept or how you eat or how you've slept previously. And that changes the way, it changes your epigenetics and how those cells use those genes. So that's an extremely important piece that if you're not actually evaluating the patient and talking to them and getting biomarkers like lab results, you're not really going to know how to apply the genetics appropriately. Such a good point. And I'm going to also play devil's advocate. So say your you knew your grandmother had Alzheimer's and you knew some ways to prevent Alzheimer's and you said, mom, we need to, you know, change the way you're eating and get you exercising, practicing mindfulness. And she may have really decreased her risk of Alzheimer's. But can you talk a little bit about what you've seen both in your patients and personally in terms of how knowledge of genetics can influence motivation and action on some of these, these lifestyle factors? For sure. And now if, if, um, if I just told my mother, read the book, The End of Alzheimer's, it's a great book, and do everything in there, she would have gotten a lot of benefit from that. I did mention a few examples that were more specific, like the choline and liver function tests. So, so there are several things that she wouldn't have got the benefit of. She would have gotten most of it, but not all of it. Like, we're really interested in that last little bit, too. And you asked specifically about motivation. Um, we know from the science that basing diets, exercise, other things on genomics can make a difference. A big part of that though, we think just in our practice, is um, the motivation that someone feels from actually being told why, according to their DNA. As an example, most of us uh, at this point probably believe and think gluten is probably not a great thing for us in general. Some people have allergy sensitivities, but even if you don't, it probably has a negative effect on you. But if I just tell you, stop eating, eat less gluten and wheat, that's different than if I tell you, hey, you have an SH2B3 polymorphism and you respond very negatively to wheat and gluten. So I'm telling you to do the same thing, it's the same action, but there is a bigger motivation once you realize it's advice for you and you realize that it's not this advice that works for most people. Whereas you may be doubting saying, maybe I'm that 20% or that 30% on the other side. So when you're given the information that this is for you, there is a motivation component as well. Genomics can empower and they can scare, right? So there's a positive and a negative to it. So it can empower you to enact behavior change. It can also scare you a little bit. So as a physician, I'm always sort of keeping that in mind, making sure that I don't scare my patient too much, but also empower them with the information that they need to know how to live their life and get the most longevity out of it. A great example of that is ApoE3, where if you have one of those, or ApoE4, where if you have one of those genes, you've got a three times increased risk of Alzheimer's. 
that's a three times risk of developing Alzheimer's in your life, which means over your lifetime, that's a 30% likelihood of developing dementia, which is scary. And I have to approach that topic with my patients very delicately. The good news is that if you change your life in the right ways, you have the right lifestyle, you decrease certain foods, you don't decrease alcohol intake, you improve sleep. If you can do all those things, you can bring yourself back down to the normal population risk. So it's a conversation and making sure that I have the patient understand that they can change this. You can affect your genetics and the outcome is not predetermined. Yeah, that, and that APOE4 is such a great example. The, the way I approach that with patients is I've seen in medicine physicians frequently curse a patient. And what I mean by that is they tell them, you've got this risk, you have this going on, and then it ends up happening. You get in this negative spiral and we can't do that. And so the way I approach APOE4 is when someone has that gene and I'm talking to them, what I say and what I truly believe is I have really good news for you. You have this gene that if we didn't know about it, would, would have increased your risk three times or even 11 times if you had two. Really good news. You have this gene that would have done this, had this effect on you if we hadn't known about it. But I'm so glad we looked at your genetics because now we know you, you have this and you're not going to get Alzheimer's and dementia. Here's all the things we're going to do. Here's all the ways we're going to have an effect. Like you're in control here. Let's take control and make sure you don't, you don't get it. But that empowering instead of cursing is a really important part of how we use genomics. I love, well, Mike alluded to this a little bit earlier, but this is still a very new and emerging field. So what are some of the current limitations of applying genomics? I think you've kind of heard us saying a little bit already is you, you can never take it in isolation. I see this happen all the time. We, we think that DNA by itself is it's information, but it's almost useless when it comes to actual decision-making. I see people, especially in the last several years, it's, it's become more and more common to, for people to sequence their own DNA and run it through these different algorithms. They'll make mistakes, for example, exercise. We're here at the CrossFit Games, that's a good example. Seeing people run their genetics and they see that they have a slight endurance preference. So what that means, and they've done good studies on this, they did a great study out of Great Britain where they took uh, soccer players and they match them to genomics-based exercise program or a standard program. The ones that did genomics-based had better results, better power and some other things. But people don't understand the nuance there and that um, it's a slight change in the exercise program. And it's never gonna trump basic exercise science, physiology, and concepts like specificity. So if you're training to be a CrossFit Games athlete and you have a slight endurance preference, it doesn't mean you start just cycling and running all the time and not lifting weights. It means that when you're doing your lifting workout, maybe you do slightly higher reps and lower weights. But it's a slight modification. And it's not as important as what your actual goals are and the specificity. So people just over-index frequently on specific SNPs and genetics, and it's just a piece of the puzzle. It has to be put in the context of the whole person and their goals and everything else about them. The, the research itself is in its infancy. Uh, your genome has about 10 million base pairs in it, and we're only looking about 650,000 on the tests that we do on our patients. And of those 650,000, we're only using about 100,000 to actually make determinations on our patients. Now, we don't know that those other 650,000 or those other 9.3 million really have that much of an effect on your actual outcomes, but there's a good chance that there's going to be some effect. So you have to realize that the accuracy here is not 100%. It's 
probably, on, in my personal opinion, closer to 80%. And if you look at our data, that's enough to have an effect and improvement in patients' outcomes. But there's the possibility that you might be in that 20% and we might tell you you're not going to respond well to this in your diet. In reality, you actually would. So it has to be like approached with some degree of hesitation and realization that we still have to practice medicine outside of it. You can't just depend on this one thing. I think in an emerging science like this, the most important thing is humility around it about what we know and what we don't know. Like we're not going to ignore all of this science that's there. We're going to try to use it, but we're also going to understand we're just scratching the surface. This is like the depths of the ocean that we're probing. So there's so much more that we want to take the science and the evidence and apply it, but in a humble way, knowing that there's going to be more science and we may change our mind and what we do over time. It's just emerging with 650,000 data points. <laughs> um, what are you most excited about? Where do you see this field going and where do you think we'll be five years from now? I, I hope that five years from now we look back at what we're doing and we're embarrassed with how far behind we were. Like we feel really good about being on the cutting edge of the science, but it's accelerating so fast that, that I think we're going to be hopefully embarrassed. And I think we're just going to do better and better. Like, like we talked about, we're being more precise. And that's the goal. The goal of science, in my mind, is just to get closer and closer to an approximation of the truth. And the speed with which we're approaching that, we're never going to get absolute truth, but we're just getting closer and closer, faster and faster, and that excites me. I think the most interesting thing I'm excited about is epigenetics, which I know we've mentioned a couple of times, but that's the turning on and off of genes, which we think has something to do with longevity and also obviously has to do with whether you're gonna, how your body's gonna function, right? We're learning a lot about epigenetics now and some of the studies are even suggesting that we can look at specific areas and to tell whether genes are turned on or off, which is cool because now you can figure out how to turn them on or off, right? And that can actually change your outcome. So I'm really excited about the new research coming about epigenetics is probably, you know, two or three years away from really affecting how we take care of patients. Awesome, lots to look forward to. I would love to take some audience questions. Yes, Noah's gonna come over with the microphone. Hi, um, I'm, my name's Riley. I'm a third year medical student actually. So my main question is, how far away or do you think we'll ever see this in like mainstream medicine? I think we're very close. So in general, um, <laughs> When you look at where the evidence is, normally medicine is about 20 years behind. Uh, at a university setting, setting and like in medical school, you're more like 10 years behind. So you're kind of on the cutting edge. So, I, I, but I do think we're a few years away, but the evidence is just mounting more and more. And more people are starting to practice this way. The, the problem is it's really difficult. Like it's, it's a lot of information. So we need good tech solutions to enable physicians to be able to do this without memorizing tens of thousands of SNPs and knowing how they all play together. So we need more, more systems and software and uh, machine learning and AI is gonna really help accelerate a lot of that too. So physicians and people get it. Like when you explain, like we've just explained, everyone understands this should happen. It's just how, and that's gonna be a lot of tech solutions to really kind of pull all this data together. Uh, my name is Chris. Um, I just had a question about the financial ability of this like obviously it's brand new so i'm sure insurance doesn't cover it or anything like that yet um what would you say the limitations are financially how expensive is it exactly and um how close are we to making it so that it's more available to like the general population the first human genome that was sequenced cost 2.3 billion dollars it's a little cost prohibitive uh now it's less than a thousand to do a whole genome 
but we don't need the whole genome. Like we, there's like Mike was saying, there's only a certain set that we actually have any data that's actionable. So when I said we sequence our patient's DNA every time, um, it costs a little over $100 for that. Uh, the blood tests themselves, we do a big panel, costs more than that, it's a little over $200. When we first started, the, um, just putting all the data together and the time it took, it was really expensive. Um, and that, that bothered us. Like it was really important, like accessibility and people being able to afford this. And now the cost of the DNA, the, the blood work, everything else has came down so much that we can do this for less than $100 a month for someone on a plan. And also insurance, while it doesn't pay for the DNA sequencing and a lot of the deep blood tests, that's just a few hundred dollars. The actual care delivery, insurance will pay for most of that. So we're getting ready to do some trials right now, actually accepting insurance with people in the near future probably, just to see how that, that plays out too, to see if we can make it even more accessible and lower cost for folks. Hi guys, uh, my name is Rachel. Um, something that I was thinking about while you guys were talking was just the potential for all of this. So I'm thinking about um, like parenting, you know, how you can sequence somebody's genomes and figure out exactly how you can parent somebody or somebody who has cancer and figure out exactly what's going to help treat them the best. So what do you think is the biggest potential to all this? We go parenting, you go cancer. <laughs> so, so parenting, so my wife is a child psychiatrist too. So we have these discussions a lot about, about that. There's a lot of ethical issues around, sequencing a kid's DNA without their permission and can they get permission and should we do that or not? So that's in there. That's a gray area we're still kind of figuring out. Also, I haven't seen any evidence or literature because it would be hard to produce on whether or not we could have a positive effect. It does make sense that just like we would want to optimize our diets and, and our lifestyle, if we could do that for our kids, that seems like a good thing. But I think, I think um, children are basically little adults. So a lot of what we're talking about would apply, but I think the bigger hurdle there is just thinking through the ethics of like when a child is able to give consent for genomics and, and things like that. In, in terms of parenting, I've kind of struggled a little bit personally with that, knowing the power of genomics, but then also like not wanting to, like not, not wanting to put that burden on my children, knowing those things. You know, at what point do you want your child to know that they've got an increased risk for Alzheimer's, right? At what point do you want them to know that like they can't eat that food because it's gonna increase their risk of cardiovascular disease? Like that's kind of a heavy question. Um, and personally, I have not, I've not run my kids' genomes, even though I know that both of those are possibilities in each one of their gene genomes. So it's, it's, I think that's a very personal question that each parent's gonna have to answer on their, answer on their own in terms of like, when do you, when do you wanna strip away that innocence from your child? Um, God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, when do, you, when do you want to empower them with that information? Because we all know that atherosclerosis starts when you're a kid, right? Like you actually start developing plaque in your arteries as a, as a young child, and in many cases, if you're somebody who develops plaque, right? So that's, that's important to know. Should I be feeding them different foods? Should I check and not tell them? And then just like set up their life the right way for success. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to that that I think we're going to start to figure out as we even start, you know, people start checking their own genomes and realizing that what they've got, they're passing on to their children. Um, in terms of cancer, at all of it, yes. Um, so your risk of cancer, how you're going to respond to certain drug therapies, actually um, running the genome on the actual cancer cells themselves, determine whether they're going to respond to certain therapies. I mean, the, this is one of the most well-established areas of genomics is the cancer research 
following behind that, probably the pharmacogenomics, which is how you respond to drugs. And then following behind that, all the lifestyle stuff that we've predominantly been talking about. I was just going to kind of follow up with that on the parenting. I was kind of more looking at like um, not so much what you're feeding them, but more of how they respond to, I guess, like different parenting techniques more of. So kind of looking at like, you know, you're going to have some kids that are going to respond better to like an authoritarian type or some that are going to be more, they're going to respond better to like a loving type of parenting relationship and kind of looking at that. Um, but I understand all the the food stuff. Yeah, that's that's way too much. Yeah. So um, I don't I haven't seen any great evidence on that specifically, but we can we can extrapolate a little bit. So there's a really interesting emerging field called therapy genetics. Like we talked a little bit about the psychology earlier, and I, one, I mentioned one SNP, which is the OXTR. If you have that, you may do better with loving kindness meditation. There are other SNPs that, that lead you to believe this person may respond better to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so there's examples like that. And so if, 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 as we're getting that data when it comes to psychiatry, psychology, and therapy genetics, it, you, could, you can imagine how that may play out and apply to, to raising children as, as well. Like what, how you approach them, just like how you approach a depressed or anxious patient. Hi, I'm Sayla. What is a oh sorry? What does a patient experience look like for y'all? So when someone comes in to see you, obviously it's gonna. I imagine since it's very prescriptive to the individual, testing frequencies and stuff like that will vary. But on average, what does it look like to come in, sit down with y'all, get a baseline of you know action steps, and what's the follow up look like from there? Um, everyone is different, and we call this personalized medicine, but we start with the exact same thing for everybody. Uh, so everyone that comes in, we want to take a holistic approach. So we sequence the DNA. Um, again, your DNA is not your destiny. That's your operating system and about 20% of the outcome is important, but we need to know every, everything you've done is turned on and off those good and bad genes. So where are you right now? And so we do a, a really, really big blood panel as well, really deep on the biometrics. Um, then we add on uh, an ancient technique that we read about in a textbook that no one in medicine uses anymore. It's called conversation. So you actually talk to the patient and fill in a lot of the gaps that we can't measure in the data about your lifestyle and, and what you enjoy, what your goals are, things like that with the questionnaire. We also can look at the microbiome. A lot of people will do that as well, but it's not a required start just because of the finances. It's not, a, it's not an inexpensive thing. All of that data is then combined into a software program that we developed that kind of automates a 50-page report of how to optimize your diet, your exercise, your mindfulness approach, your sleep, your cardiovascular risk, cancer risk, all of these things. You have the first appointment with someone and we go over all of that and we establish what are your top few goals based on what you want to accomplish and what we see needs some work. And then we start working. And from there, it's more like a traditional medical office and that we're going to iterate. So we, we set up, what are your goals? How are we going to objectively measure those? If you have a weight loss goal, how much, how many pounds at what point, if you have a, a lipid go or whatever goal it is, objective marker, we remeasure it two to three months, make sure we're on the right path because it, again, this is not perfect medicine, it's precision medicine. So we want to make sure that what we're recommending is actually working and then adjust from there. And it's that same iterative process retesting, adjusting, retesting, adjusting, getting closer and closer to your goal of optimization. And I would say another big component of that is working closely with health coaches. So um, we work really closely with health coaches to implement a lot of those lifestyle recommendations um, and then recheck and make sure we're moving along the right track. It doesn't matter how good the plan is. If you can't implement it, it's no good. So the health coaches are... Um, uh, 
uh, don't tell physicians that it is, are more important than the physicians in our, in our process. The, the plan, we get the plan, then actually doing it, the patient and the health coach, that's where the role of magic happens. How does DNA sequencing work for people that want to apply for healthcare coverage? Does it impact their ability to be able to qualify for private healthcare if you discover a condition that might you might be predisposed for? Yeah, there's um, there's pretty good legislation now that protects you and protects your DNA from being used against you in terms of health insurance um, or life insurance. Um, so the Congress passed that. Was it two years ago? It was a little longer than that, but it's yeah. it's a great valid concern everyone has, and you never know what the risks are in the future if that changes. But but right now we're in a pretty good spot, like the healthcare that you can't be denied coverage because of that, and and, and they don't have access to the data. It's protected HIPAA information. Well, with the rise of telemedicine, have you been able to expand your patient territory at all? We are only 100% virtual. Um, so yeah, so we, we do only telemedicine. And so because of that, it, it, it's really easy. It doesn't matter where the patient is. So it, it is much easier. And we saw that with the pandemic. We just realized like how much we could do without the physical locations. And so that's what we've moved to to. Come on, somebody's got another question. I have a question. Yes, Noah. Um, I had patellar tendonitis for nine years. I stopped drinking caffeine and it went away. Is there a connection? <laughs> yes. Probably not. That's what I wanted to know. Hey, don't say that to me. <laughs> more questions. We have, we have time for one more, I think, Dr. Fouché. One more? One more. All right, I have a question. Do you guys have a favorite snip? I think I get more... I have four children. I can more easily tell you my favorite child, my favorite snip, I think. <laughs> no, I, no, so I'll, I'll name two. Can I pick two? Okay, fine. <laughs> so, uh, and we've already talked about them. Uh, number one, just because it's interesting, is that FAH snip. It's super cool to think about how someone's anxiety or even how CBD affects their sleep um, and pain thresholds. It's a really cool snip. Um, a more serious one is the APOE. Like the, the amount of... Uh, the, Alzheimer's and dementia, we do so poorly uh, as a medical community. And the, the, the difference that we've seen by, by finding whether someone has this and empowering them and the future of prevention of that, which is really the, the best way to approach it, um, that, just that SNP. Uh, and it also has a massive effect on cardiovascular disease as well, that ApoE4. So I think those are the, my two favorite. One, because it's kind of cool and fun. And the other, because we can just make such a big impact for that family uh, not just the patient, but the family and their friends and their, their loved one. We identify that and avoid that horrible disease. Did he steal yours? What's that? Did he steal yours? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, my, mine is the oxytocin receptor SNP, which is the hug and uh, mindfulness SNP. So I get to prescribe people to hug more and uh, do more meditation. It's my favorite. I love it. That's a great prescription. Well, thank you all for being here today. Thanks for your great questions. And let's give a big round of applause to Matt and Mike. Very good. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 